even as soon as 2027, we move from this warming cycle into this cooling cycle, with Noah actually saying we're going into a full-blown coal cycle. So what are we doing with all these EVs and uh, renewables? By the time we get into the cooling cycle, households are going to rebel. Why, why spend the additional whatever it is to purchase an EV and to move to renewables when the weather is cooling under natural circumstances? But that's a different story. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. A new world order is becoming clearer by the day. And in our Global Macro series, we dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts to help us better understand what this new global macro-driven world will look like. We want to explore their perspectives on a host of important issues and hopefully dig out nuances in their work through meaningful conversations. Our guest today is someone who has a lot of experience from regions of the world that the West is having a challenge with at the moment. So it's a great time to get a peek into what really goes on in these areas of the world and what he believes we should expect. So please enjoy my conversation with Simon Hunt. Simon, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today for what I'm sure will be an enlightening conversation as part of our Global Macro Series with some predictions that may shock and surprise some of our listeners. Now, I first came across your work a couple of years ago. And I was fascinated by some of the stories and the outlooks that you talked about, as this was very different from many of the mainstream narratives that we hear so often. So I very much look forward to digging into this today. But since this is your first time on, on our podcast, perhaps I could ask you to set the stage a little bit and provide a bit of context for our conversation by just telling us a few highlights from your background, as this, of course, is highly relevant for our conversation. And then we'll dig into lots of the topics afterwards. Well, I started my career in Central Africa in the copper industry. And from there, moved to London to join Anglo-American Corporation. Uh, from there, helped start up an international copper development association and then into the city of London to get some experience. And uh, then I decided I wanted to do something on my own before I got any gray hairs. So I started up a company called Brook Hunt and Associates, which eventually got taken over by Wood McKenzie. 
And uh, I've been on my own uh, ever since then, developing a network of friends and uncles with different disciplines that allows me to very often make uh, contrarian calls, which for the most part have proven to be correct, which brings us really into this troubled world that we're now living in, uh, because a combination of um, the war scenario in Europe and a very highly leveraged financial system is going to give us uh, a few nightmares uh, between now uh, over the next five years. And you also, which I actually think I've heard you speak on other podcasts of the, to this uh, effect as well, and, and maybe you can just touch on this as well, and that is the amount of time you've spent in some of the places that today uh, is part of this changing world um well, I don't want to use the word order necessarily, but the changing world landscape. Can you share a little bit about sort of your extensive time around uh, the places, Russia, China? Um, I have friends in Russia. I've only visited uh, Moscow once, where I was privileged to uh, speak before um, the Academy of Sciences, which is their premier think tank. Uh, but I spent uh, a large part of the last 20 odd years tramping around Asia, particularly in China, where I first visited in 1993. And then uh, for the next uh, 15 years was visiting approximately 80 factories in about 50 different towns and cities uh, every year. And since then, I've confined the visits to uh, a fewer group of people, but those with portfolios that uh, gave me a good insights into the economy. Yeah, very interesting. Now, I know we have lots of kind of markets to talk about or events to talk about and 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 so on and so forth but actually before we get to that i want to start a slightly different place um because i have a feeling that you're going to share something today that may as i said in the beginning may shock some of our listeners so in order to to go into it in order to get a little bit of context to as to why you have these uh, views um, and what you see for the global economy, what you see for the world, really. I wanted to ask a little bit about your process, meaning what do you look at in terms of getting, um, kind of formulating your forecast, your conclusions? Are you able to share some of your, your insights into the process a little bit, Simon? Um, the processes is are multiple. Um I have for really ever since uh, the 1970s, I have uh, watched how the debt levels have been rising. So debt has always been central to my thinking. And then uh, what uh, central banks and governments have been doing uh, I have friends and relations uh, all around the world 
They feed me with different types of information, which I put into the thinking box. And uh, I come up with conclusions and then on timing and, um, and the extent of <coughs> turning points, I've worked very closely with uh, my technical associate. We've worked together for probably 25 years and it's worked very well indeed. Uh, that's WaveTrack International. Um, so we put our thinking together with how they see the magnitude of the changes and the direction of those changes. And that's what, that's what um, brings us to our conclusions. Yeah. One of the things, and then I'll move on to some of the more specific things that we're going to talk about, but again, just finally on your process, because we, I don't meet so many people um, that uh, talks about cycles. Uh, obviously, Howard Marks has written a whole book about cycles. Uh, there are other people who come out uh, talking about cycles, but not too many. Um, I actually happen to believe in cycles, um, but I'm not always good enough to uh, to work out exactly when they uh, should peak and or, or, or trough. But but you, I've heard you talk about cycles, and I'll I'll tell you one cycle specifically that I've heard you talk about, which is the sunspot cycle, and relating to global warming. Uh, and um, so I'd love to hear a little bit about whether it's kind of the same type of, of cycle analysis you use across all markets or are they different? Um, just just to give us a little bit of background because I do think that they are part of or, or an important part of some of your work. Uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong in my assessment here. Well, first of all, there's the long-term Kondratiev cycle. Yeah, yeah. Then we have a, a series of uh, shorter business cycles and they all fit into to the long-term cycle. Unfortunately, many of them are now converging, which is going to lead to some of these big shocks that we're going to see. Um, I mean, the weather cycle is extremely important. Um, climate operates in long-term cycles of 40 to 70 years, and it's driven by sunspot activity, volcanic activity, changes in ocean temperatures, all of which are part of this long-term uh, cycle movements. And we are on, in the process of moving out of the 40-odd years of warming weather that we've been experiencing and we'll be moving into 40 to 70 years of cooling weather. Now, the cooling weather allows the oceans to absorb excess CO2 emissions. And, um, and in fact, uh, NOAA and NASA, in a blog that was issued in September 2020, has subsequently been withdrawn um, for obvious reasons, uh, were stating very clearly that even as soon as 2027, we move from this warming cycle into this cooling cycle, with NOAA actually saying we're going into a full-blown cold cycle. So 
what are we doing with all these EVs and uh, renewables? By the time we get into the cooling cycle, households are going to rebel. Why, why spend the additional whatever it is to purchase an EV and to move to renewables when the weather is cooling under natural circumstances? But that's a different story. It's a different story, although it ties into something that we may touch on later, uh, and that is, of course, that if we are indeed moving into a cooling cycle, that has massive implication for potential food inflation because um, the extra production we've had in, say, grains across the world in the last 20 years to essentially meet the uh, demand growth that we've seen um, has actually been helped by the slightly warmer weather. Uh, the growing season has been longer, as far as I'm aware, um, so if we do get into a cooling um, period now, uh, that could kind of tie in with, uh, I think, uh, much higher prices on, on food uh, and therefore inflation. Anyway, we'll come to that. I'm going to ask you a very simple question, which I'm sure you've been asked a few times uh, recently, and that is maybe you can talk a little bit about your kind of global macro view at the moment and and if you want to we can you can focus on one or two asset classes at a time because i know you have quite a detailed view on a number of them and if we want to break it down a little bit we can talk about um maybe the most important one you think right now and then we can work our way through um so we don't leave out uh, any details but tell me tell us a little bit about what you see happening um right now as as you and i speak in in uh, in the fourth quarter, early 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 part of the fourth quarter of 2022, after an already pretty uh, eventful um, year so far, but as as people are about to learn, this is probably just the beginning. Well, I think that over the next few weeks, you're going to see a dangerous intensification of the war, which is really between Russia and NATO, uh, using Ukraine as the proxy. But I think that by the end of the year, it's going to, the, the risk is that it is going to be an out, an out war between NATO and Russia. And I think there's a real risk that the war will spread beyond the Ukrainian borders so we're going to have um, serious consequences of this military intensification at a time when the global financial system, which is highly leveraged, is going to, uh, with central banks tightening credit and raising interest rates, is going to cause severe pain in what I call the undergrowth of the global credit system. So you're going to see pockets of um, implosions to an extent that probably by or during the either sometime over the next three months we will see central banks being forced to change direction. Instead of tightening, they'll be forced to add liquidity into the system. 
to stop these bombshells from exploding. And we will see, then we will see the dollar coming off its uh, perch. And with uh, central banks turning from tightening to loosening, you are going to see a resurgence of inflation accompanied by further increases and significantly so over the next two years in energy and food prices. And as you mentioned earlier, food prices risk absolutely exploding upwards, um, partly because of um, exports from Russia and Ukraine of, of fertilizers and grains, etc., being denied to the rest of the world. But also climate changes. We've had drought uh, across many parts of the world uh, during the summer, not caused by global, what people call climate change, global warming, but by an underwater volcano at Tonga exploding, which spewed up a lot of vapor into the atmosphere, which circled around the globe. And that is what is actually did cause the, these extreme temperatures. But when we get into 25, then we get hit by the 90 year Glesberg cycle, which in the 1930s caused the Dust Bowl for a decade in the Midwest, which as you know is a very important uh, uh, area for agriculture. So add that all together and you're going to get extreme increases in food prices and in fact um, I've just uh, picked out a, a table of the FAO food price index, which was in round numbers 90, average 95 in 2019. Uh, last year, uh, 126. This year, year to date is 147. But the time we get into 2024, we have it rising to 185 and even 220 in 2025. I mean, the impact of that on households and in parts of the world, poverty is just going to soar. So all of this basically leads to, with interest rates. We have the 10-year US Treasury yielding over 11% by 2025. And that, of course, is going to uh, implode large parts of the global, global highly leveraged financial system. Add this all together with the war still ongoing, we were going to we're going to have a depression. And a depression very much akin to what 1929 and 1930 to 1932 was experienced. It's it, what's interesting about what you're saying, uh, Simon, is not only is it obviously uh, shocking to some, and let me just go step one step back and explain to people that the cycle you mentioned 
is a drought cycle. So um, this is why it's very you mean, important. On, on the food a, cycle. Exactly. Yes. It's a it's a drought cycle, actually, that, that you mentioned. Uh, it's just so I just want to make sure people understood that um, they may not be familiar with the cycle name itself, but it's a drought cycle. But but you're absolutely right. And and by the way, it's um, already now we see massive increases in prices in over here in Europe. I saw an article recently where people have picked a basket of goods that they would buy in Germany. Um, norm, a normal family would buy. And from last year to this year alone, that basket of, fo- of food and goods were up 39%. So it's completely in line with some of the numbers you yeah. mentioned yeah. from the... It's, it's horrific. Yeah. Now, let's stay on the wall for one second uh, more because... And then we'll get into some of the markets. But because the war, you mentioned that it would expand outside Ukraine... But actually, I think you also believe that this is this is we are in the third, you know, World War Three. So war is not just confined to Europe, uh, as far as I, I I understand your work. Can you tell us a little bit about what else you might see on that front, and then we can go into how that impacts uh, commodities and other markets around the world. Well, first, let's take um, uh, Asia. Uh, obviously, Taiwan is a very, in inverted commas, hot spot at the moment. I believe strongly that China has no wish to invade or blockade Taiwan. But there is a risk that America will take China over the red line by making some sort of announcement such as uh, we support any referendum that Taiwan has for independence. That would force China to make make a move. Not one that they would want to do. They are prepared for it, but they have no wish to do it because they feel that uh, given time, uh, an accommodation will be made between the island and the mainland. And it comes back to what Deng Xiaoping always said, the two parties come together in 2028. Can I ask you a question about China specifically uh, on that note? Because one of our previous guests who talks a lot about uh, what he sees around the world in similar lines with you. It's Peter Zion, who recently wrote um, uh, his latest book is called The End of the World is Just the Beginning. And um, But one of the things he, one of the claims that he makes or conclusions he makes is that if China were, had to do something militarily, they really need to do it soon because of demographics. And given your the connections and all the time you've spent in China, I wonder what you think uh, or what you believe their view is on their own demographics, which my understanding is that within not that many years, maybe a decade or two, their population will be significantly smaller than what it is now due to all the policies they've had, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How do you see China and demographics and and what that might change in... in I think there's one statistic that that tells you everything, which is the number of employed people 
to support retirees. In uh, 1990, there were 14 people for every one retiree. By 2040, there will only be four employed people to support one retiree. One reason why there is such a focus by the leadership on technology, productivity, and robotics is to get the productivity up. And I think that's the cornerstone of where the growth is going to come from. But, but let, let's go back to one, one uh, interesting point. Should China be forced to invade Taiwan because the big semiconductor company, TSMC, has something like 500 suppliers in Taiwan, at least one of them would be bound to be knocked out. So you would have zero production coming from TSMC, which would probably impact America more than it would impact China. So just staying on current topics, actually, Simon, what do you make of the change in policy? I'm not a specialist here, but I, I understand that US within the last week or so have made some pretty big announcements in terms of the policies on uh, semiconductors and, and, and so on and so forth. Maybe you know more about this than I do, but I do think it has an impact and is fo focused directly on, on China, essentially. Well, first of all, it's obviously another example of America trying to curtail China's growth. So Beijing knows that there is an economic war between the two countries. Secondly, and I'm not an expert on this either, but uh, reading some experts' views in China, uh, apparently there are um, ways around a lot of the moves that have been made by, by America. And secondly, China is probably getting through back channels a lot of the sophisticated chips from Taiwan. When you consider that um, there's something like a million Taiwanese working on, on the mainland, and Taiwan has been the biggest investor in China since the 1990s. So despite all the political rhetoric, actually, um, business carries on quite normally, and you can see it in the trade data. Okay. Now, just before we move on to the market, so to speak, Simon, um, were there, are there any other points in the world where you might where you see con because I know war is a big part of what you see uh, in the next couple few years actually. So are there any other areas other than Asia uh, and and Europe? I mean, are there other areas that we should be well? I aware think of I or? think we should keep a BDI on what is happening in Syria and what could happen and how that might expand into Iran. Um, and that could create some very um, dangerous, volatile periods for oil prices. Okay. 
All right, let's move into the markets, uh, Simon. Why don't we just start with with, with with interest rates? I know you're expecting by 2025, you said 11% plus uh, interest rates, but we are here now. We've had the tightening in the US. Interest rates have gone up. Um, I think we're at like, whatever we are, 4.5% on the 30-year or maybe a little bit less, around 4% on the 10-year. How how do how do you see the path to getting to eleven percent, so to speak? Because if if they are going to pivot in in uh, in the coming months, uh, based on what's going to um, play how it's going to play out according to your analysis, you might think that we we may have some relief rallies. Uh, let's put it that way uh, along the way. Do you have? Do you have like a, a strong view on the path to to these well, very in high the very short term? We are we are actually seeing um, uh, rates coming down. Um, the point that I would make is the Fed can only control the short end of the curve; it can't control the long end of the curve. The market is much bigger than the central bank, and given what inflation will be doing. I mean, you're going to see U.S. CPI higher than the 1980 figure of 13.5%, which tells you that our 11% is possibly conservative. So with rising inflation, falling dollar sharply, the long end of the curve is going to be rising very sharply uh, next year and through into 2025. Okay. Okay. Now, um, let's talk a little bit about equity markets, um, because a lot of people, of course, they think of investing just looking at kind of equities. Um, we've already had um, a fair bit of, um, you know, well, a fair bit. We've had this 25% correction in the S&P this year so far. Um, obviously, markets are trying to find some kind of bottom, and they take every every signal from the Fed of some kind of pause. Uh, they take that as a buying opportunity, uh, but it hasn't worked out so well so far this year. How do you see the equity markets play out in all of this? Because I think that's one thing we didn't well, you didn't mention so much about your path to the next two or three years. But how how do you see equities in all of this? I think where we've started a bear market rally. Uh, which has probably got some way to go yet. Um, but it is a bear market rally or dead cat bounce, whichever you like to call it. And <clears throat> that would probably uh, peter out in before the end of the year. And then we reverse back, revert back into big falls in uh, equity markets, and we, we've got the S&P below 3,000 in the first quarter of next year. So what we're going to see with all the uh, problems associated with an over-leveraged and fragile financial system, the central banks turning back onto flooding the system with liquidity again which then leads us, and that's when the dollar not just comes off its perch, but starts falling really quite, in fact, very seriously in the period to 2025, where we have the dollar index halving in value. 
Now, this may also coincide with um, a string of developments such as oil producers in the Gulf deciding uh, to no longer sell oil for dollars. We could see the appearance of the new currency, which is being put together by BRICS Plus, SCO, and EAEU, uh, which basically um, is based on the value of 20 commodities. But those commodities are not valued in dollars, they're valued in grams of gold. And that's another story. So what you're going to see is a large part of the world saying, thank you very much, uh, America. We no longer want your dollars. Now, you, um, before we get to the commodity side, I just want to sort of stay a little bit on the equity side. You mentioned you can see the, the S&P I, below 3,000. Yeah, I should have, sorry, I should have added that from the spring of next year until probably mid-2024 or the end of 2024, you're going to get what I call the last hurrah in equity markets, parabolic rises, followed by the crash as we go into a depression era. And and that is what, what's interesting with me uh, for me because I've heard that scenario from other people that I have a lot of respect for and that I've seen in the past uh, have very accurate um, forecast. So my question on that is just simply, do you actually see that parabolic move actually be a move to an, a new all-time high? And once and 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 whether that, you know, that's one question. The other question is once we get past that, and then there are the other people that I've heard and, uh, and and seen analysis from where they really expect markets to go down by such a big percentage. We're talking about 90% or so, where you know, SP down in 500, 600 level. And 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 this sounds you know crazy to a lot of people, but let's not forget that the Nasdaq fell 87% only 20 years ago. So a lot of us can still remember that. So I just wanted to find out from you, is that also I mean, how do you how do you see how extreme do you see these? To answer the first question, yes, new all-time high. Okay. To answer the second question, yes, we have crashes akin to what was experienced in 1929-1932. Okay, great. That 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 makes it clear. Let's move on to the commodity side. And I know we don't have too much time today um, because it's late where you are. But let's move on to the commodities. They're, they play a very important role. Now, in the beginning of the year, when uh, when the Ukraine event um, started uh, or the conflict started, um, a lot of people came out um, from the commodity side saying, yeah, this is the beginning of a new super cycle in commodities. <laughs> Just you wait and see. And uh, so everything was was great for them in the first few weeks uh, of March. And since then, we've had, you know, I would say a meaningful sell-off in many commodities. So let's divide maybe the commodities into different things. We have energies, we have food, we have metals. Talk, talk us through some of these different sectors and how you see that and also whether you buy into this narrative as a commodity super cycle per se. Oh, first of all, to answer the last question first, <clears throat> we're not in a commodity super cycle. We're in a normal business cycle. 
you can't have a commodity super cycle if in within three years the world is going to hell in, the, hell in a basket. Uh, point one. Uh, point two, you have to come back to what I said earlier about uh, weather patterns. By 2027 or by 2030, households, the consumers are going to be rebelling against the high prices of electricity because of the switch to renewables, EVs, etc. Even now, there's a pullback in Germany towards EVs because the cost of filling your battery with electricity is greater than the cost of filling your tank with petrol or diesel. So I don't buy that cycle. It's a, it's a business cycle. But uh, you are going to see the similar pattern emerging in commodities that we saw that we are likely to see in the equity market. Oil. The oil price this year should probably average $107. We have a world uh, recovery, a little bit modest, but very inflationary in 2023 and 2024. And we're probably going to see even more supply disruptions. So we have an average price in 2023 of $130, and in 2024, of $170. And that's average Those price. Those are average prices, yeah. yeah. Food, I've explained food. Take uh, amongst the base metals, take copper. We'll probably see a short-term uh, bear market rally that takes copper up to about $8,700 uh, before the end of the year. Then in line with equity markets falling sharply and physical consumption being weak in the first in the first quarter we'll see prices probably down to 6000 then we get the impact of inflation falling dollar uh, consumption recovering added to which companies in the manufacturing chain from the fabricator, the end user, replenishing and adding to their inventories, plus financial institutions seeing a falling dollar, rising inflation. Commodities is one place they look for as, as a hedge, and that will be in the metals, including copper. So we go from 6,000 in the first quarter of, 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 20, uh, of next year to a peak of somewhere around $14,000 before the end of 2024. Then you kiss it all goodbye and say, thank you very much. We're now moving into depression years. Prices are going to completely collapse. So of course, a lot of people would say, well, we're going to just jump into gold as the safe haven. How do you, how do you see gold playing? Well, out? gold is, gold is going to do what it's always done, which is that it reflects the real value of everything. So, uh, combine the fact 
that we see this resurgence in inflation, gold will be bought, gold will be held, and um, uh, add to that, uh, um, a large part of the world will be back into a de facto uh, gold standard uh, with commodities being valued in grams of gold and not in dollars. So don't ask me what the price of gold will be, but it will be significantly higher than it is today. So let me ask you a different question then. And the question is that, say, about a year ago, uh, there was this huge debate about between sort of the Bitcoiners and the gold box. And a lot of the gold people would say, I guess the Bitcoiners would say more or less the same, oh, well, it's a, if we get inflation or if we get uncertainty and world war, these assets will go sky high. None of them have gone up in price since. Uh, obviously, Bitcoin has collapsed. Gold has gone down, you know, meaningfully. Gold has only Do gone down of, in dollar terms. Right. That's what I wanted to ask you. Have you... If you look at the, uh, look at the gold price in yen or euro or pound sterling terms, it's gone up. Okay. Now, I also heard you about the, the dollar, where you still think there's some upside to it, and then it's going to collapse. It might even half, which, of course, it's happened before. This is, you know, not outrageous that we see these massive moves over time. But I wanted to ask you, because over here in Europe, uh, where I'm based, um, I look at the Euro project, and I still call it a project, because I'm actually not personally convinced necessarily that they can hold it all together, given the the stresses that we have in the system. And so when we hear people say, yeah, the dollar is going to go down, it's going to go down a lot. It has to go down against something. And I'm always thinking at the moment, at least, well, the other choices are not great either. So so how do we, how do you think about some of these other currencies like the euro? And obviously we have the yen, which has been incredibly weak. We have the pound that has gone down a lot are these countries or areas suddenly going to get their act together and actually have currencies that that are strong in their own right? Or how do we see this relationship? Because it's fair, to, it's fine to say the dollar is going to go down, but it does mean other things are going to go up in the currency. Well, world. Certainly, I think you're going to see in before in this period to say mid 2024 you're going to see big rises in the euro and big rises in pound sterling. Uh, you'll see big rises in the ruble. You'll see big rises in the, in, in the Chinese yuan. And I think a currency to watch carefully over the next few years is the UAE's dirham. Because of oil trade, I imagine. Uh, because or, of oil trade, and I think that 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 the, it's not going to be too long before they take the dirham off the peg to the U.S. dollar, which will probably coincide when they start selling oil for other currencies. Okay. Let's move on to just maybe some of the last uh, couple of questions then, and that is, given what you've laid out here today what do people do from an investment point of view i mean you could say well yeah if i'm right if i get the timing right you just trade what i said you you go long you go short etc cetera, etc cetera. but i also come from i mean as as i told you before we pressed record 
I come from a world and have spent my whole career in telling people, well, you can't predict the future. And so you should invest following just price. So when people come out and saying, this is what's going to happen, usually they also know when they're wrong or if they're wrong, if something changes. Because one thing, at least in my own experience with cycle work, yeah, cycles, the big cycles can be one or two or three, you know, plus minus a couple of years. So it's very hard to trade cycles per se. So how would, how you, how would you play? Well, I say play, but how would you invest or protect your capital? Um, and how would you know uh, if the timing is right or if the timing is wrong to make some of these shifts that you would have to make, uh, assuming you're right in terms of how it's going to play out? Well, first of all, I'm I'm not a financial advisor. Neither am I, so that's fine. Yeah. So <laughs> let's forget that. I'm a strategist and uh, I watch the dots all the time to see whether we are off track or whether we are on track. So far, we are on track, and until the dots change, I don't change. Okay, fair enough. Final two questions, Simon. Um, since it is late where you are, I, I guess this might be a relevant question. Um, what keeps you up at night? What are the things that you worry about the most in all of this that you are looking at? how dangerous the world is financially and uh, warmongering. So very concerned about um, things like um, the Davos crowd, how they're trying to shape the world. Um, they may have bought the governments, which they probably have, but they've not bought the people and the people have begun to rebel. Okay, fair. Um, and final question, really, and that is, um, we we obviously had some limited time today, um, and we tried to cover a lot of different areas. So kind of final thoughts, what else should we have been talking about that we haven't talked about uh, at this point in our conversation? Is there something where you say, yeah, we need to just mention this part of the puzzle? I think it comes back to what I've just mentioned, uh, Klaus Schwab and the Davos crowd how he's trying to, with his elite members, we better not name, um, how they're to, trying to reshape the world. And I think they're going to fail because, as we said before, they, you can buy the governments, but you can't buy the people. Let's leave it with that, Simon. This has been fascinating. This has been uh, eye-opening um, and uh, we, we are certainly very grateful for, for your time today. Um, and uh, we will, of course, link uh, to uh, your, uh, your information and bio in the show notes. Um, and, um, and people should go and follow your work. Uh, absolutely. I'm going to leave it with that. As people can tell, we are living in a truly global macro-driven world. Uh, so it is perhaps more important than ever before that you stay well informed. From me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you as this series continues on global macro issues. In the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. 
We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.